to share with you some about King David. That's the title of, uh, this is actually on the schedule, unlike what we've been doing <laughs> for a little while here. No, it's all been on the Lord's schedule, but um, I, this was, I titled this, Zeal for His House. Those are the words of David. David had the designation in the scripture as being a man after God's own heart. There was something that we see in David from the beginning where he is more concerned about the Lord's people and the Lord's house than he is about himself. And we see that from the time he's young and he comes out. He's sent by his father to bring uh, food to his brothers. And when he gets there, he sees the giant and, and he asks what's going on and uh, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that is defying the armies of the living God and, and his brothers mock him and say, you know, we know you. you, you just came out here to see the battle and everything. But his response is, is there not a cause in Israel? We have all these people that are supposed to be in the army and nobody has the courage or the faith or the conviction or the anointing to do something about this enemy. Everybody's shrinking back in fear. And so there's something in his heart that says, if nobody else is going to do something about it, I'm going to do something. I'll risk my life. I'll do what it takes. But we can't see the people of God living in this place of defeat. Amen. It's a burden of his heart from a young age. Thank you, Jesus. He longed to see the glory of God rest on his people. He was the one who had the burden to rebuild, or to build, excuse me, the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem. And the temple is connected to the Lord's heart. David was a man after God's own heart. It, it, <clears throat> the Lord spoke in Second Chronicles about the temple, said, I have chosen and sanctified this house, this temple, that my name would be there forever, and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. David had a zeal for the house of God. He wrote Psalm 69, and he says, For your sake I have borne reproach. Shame has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers and an alien to my mother's children because zeal for your house has consumed me. When zeal for his house begins to come upon us, we should expect that our enemies could even be those of our own household. There's something that troubles the flesh about somebody who doesn't come in his own name. Amen. If we come in our own names, Jesus said, you seek honor from one another. Everybody's fine with that. Everybody can have opinions. Your opinion, that's interesting. My opinion, consider this. And we can talk about things. But when the authority of the Lord begins to take hold of a people and they begin to express His Word and His order and His authority into the world, the flesh gets a little troubled by that. Did David, did David get to face a little bit of that? Multiple times, didn't he? In his own family. Amen. <clears throat> the word zealous for zeal for, for your house has consumed me. The word zealous... Uh, it is really, in Old English, the same word as jealous. Okay, the word jealous can mean protective, watchful, careful, vigilant, heedful, or mindful. It, it denotes the kind of connection, the passionate connection of heart towards something that says, this needs to be right. This can't be corrupted. This can't be stolen. This needs to be just right. And it's that kind of zeal that we're to have for the Lord's house. David was exemplary of the honor towards the Lord and towards his anointed, wasn't he? Even though David had been anointed to be king of Israel, he did not take the honor upon himself. He did not grow insecure about his own place in what God was doing. Even though he'd received direct confirmation and calling from God, he didn't feel like God needed help to recognize him. 
Remember, even though Saul had been rejected, David had such an honor that it is the Lord who builds the house. It is the Lord who sets up kings and deposes kings. He had such an honor in his heart that he wouldn't touch it. Do not touch the Lord's anointed and do his prophets no harm. Amen. And so he maintained his integrity. Thank you, Jesus. And so many times it would have seemed right for him to make a place for himself. And yet he didn't do it. He honored Saul because of the place that God had designated Saul to fill. And he believed God that in his time and in his way, the Lord's will was going to be done. Thank you, Jesus. So all this, the connotations here of the house and of authority, this all has to do with an ordering, as we've already talked about. There's an arrangement. We serve a God of order. That order applies in all kinds of facets. I believe God is most concerned with how it applies in the order in human relationships. We've talked before about Jerusalem meaning the city of peace, representing the kingdom of God, as opposed to Babylon, which the very name of Babylon means confusion or disorder. Have you ever wondered why huge portions of the Old Testament are spent in exacting detail about arranging certain things, whether that be in the tabernacle or whether that be in the temple? There's Big portions of the Bible dedicated to these things. What is the point of all that? What is being communicated to us in this careful attention to the tiniest details that go into the Lord's house? <clears throat> Hebrews 8, 5 says, speaking of the Old Testament priests, they serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown to you on the mountain. But in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one, since the new covenant is established on better promises." There's still a covenant. The content of that covenant has changed from the physical stones and the physical law and the, the keeping of principles and laws to being written in our hearts, to being the people of God built together, but it's still a covenant. The form that God desires a covenant of order is still in place. Is there a lesser standard, may I ask you, in the New Testament than there was given to Moses? Is there a lower standard of the kind of precision and care that God requires for the building of his house than what was given to Moses? Is he not telling us this in the book of Hebrews in order to show us that this is supposed to carry over into the new house built upon better promises? In the early parts of Hebrews, in chapter 2, he says, We must pay all the more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For since the message spoken through angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Notice he says that we not drift away. That's the easiest way to depart from the living God, is to drift just don't care enough about it. Adopt a casual attitude. Remember, I said that in the very beginning. That ignorance and a casual attitude are your best friend if you want to fail in building the Lord's house. So drifting happens when we're no longer paying careful attention. We're no longer conscious of the pattern given from above. 1 Corinthians 14. Let all things be done decently and in order. Earlier in the chapter, he says, For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. 
Colossians 2, Paul's writing to the church there, and he says, though, For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in the Spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. God cares about every area of our lives. Can we legitimately separate out um, our faith from, you know, the other parts of our life? Well, those, those are not relevant. God is just interested in what we do in church. I could agree with you if you'll agree that the church should comprise our entire lives. <laughs> Amen. You remember we talked briefly in the beginning about culture and about how God wants the community of Christ, the kingdom of God, to be an all-encompassing culture. And a culture has to do with every part of our lives. How we live, how we work, how we play, how we dress, how we eat, how we worship, how we pray. All of it. An example that I like that is given in my house at auspicious moments is how when Jesus had been raised from the dead, he made his bed. <laughs> Tells us in the Gospels that when they went in and looked, they saw that the grave cloth had been folded and the head cloth was separately by itself. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. It does get quoted in my house now and again. <laughs> If Jesus had time to make his bed after he was raised from the dead, you have time to make your bed too. <laughs> Amen. But is, is, it, is it not just a little window into that God cares about all of even the little things? Now, what am I proposing here? Am I proposing a, a, a return to some kind of uh, fastidious legalism um, and, and maybe some kind of perfect etiquette and politeness and, and so forth is supposed to just pervade everything that we do. <laughs> Thank you, Jesus. Is that, is that what it means? People get worried about the word order when we use that word because they think that's what we're talking about. They associate it with being dry and sterile and lifeless. It's supposed to be fluid. The life in God should be fluid. Amen. And that's, there's truth to that. Our bodies are fluid. Amen. Living organisms are fluid, but do they not have order? I mean, all the way down to the most microscopic levels, if you start messing with the careful, meticulous arrangement of the body, you destroy its life. So order is not counterposed to life. Order is the form that creates the possibility of life. And that's what we're looking for. And it does not just mean becoming uh, polite and quiet and fastidious about all kinds of things. The disciples kept getting in trouble for eating with unwashed hands, for example, and Jesus didn't seem to think that that was, some, uh, that was something that was causing a spiritual problem. What about Jesus cleansing the temple? Was that orderly? Kicking over tables, <laughs> driving the animals out with a whip? You know, well, God is supposed to be a God of order. That is what he was doing, isn't it? He came into that house, his father's house, and he saw that the house was out of order, that they were doing things in that house that were not to be done. And so he was restoring the order of God. Did he do it in a calm, deliberate manner? No. He had a zeal for his house. And that's what the disciples remembered when they, they saw when this happened, they said they remembered that it had been written, zeal for his house has eaten me up. It has consumed me. Amen. It's made me a stranger to my mother's children. Thank you, Jesus. His care and his honor for his father's house was so great that he could not stand the violations that were going on there. Thank you, Jesus. So I said before, I believe God is most concerned with the order of relationships between us and Him, between us and one another. Whether that be 
children to parents, whether that be in, in the marriage between the husband and the wife, between elders and disciples, or between the various gifts and ministries and functions in the body, between the young and the aged, the Lord is concerned that there is a way that we should relate to one another. We see multiple examples in the Bible of some of the most severe judgment that we see takes place in response to violations of order. We've discussed some of them already in this, this season we've been together. Remember when Aaron and Miriam came to Moses and basically said, you know, we're your brother and your sister. Can't we be occupying a similar position to you in this whole thing? Amen. And Miriam was struck with leprosy. Moses had to pray for her. When Aaron's sons went in and burned unauthorized fire, it says, on the altar, the fire came out of the altar and killed them. When Korah challenged Moses and said, you know, is not the whole congregation holy? Who do you think you are to set yourself up like this? Well, he didn't set himself up. The Lord had called him and set him in that place. The earth swallowed Korah and his whole band alive. When King Uzziah went into the temple, and even though he was king of Israel, when he usurped the position of the priests and went in to offer sacrifices, it can look really good, these violations of order. That's one lesson to get from that. I'm trying to do the right thing. I'm going to go offer a sacrifice. But it hadn't been given to him to do this. And when he went in to do that, he also was struck with leprosy for life. Thank you, Jesus. And we've already talked about the example of when the ark was being brought up to Jerusalem by David, how Uzzah put out his hand to be helpful because he was afraid the ark was going to fall. And yet his, no man was supposed to touch that ark and, and that he was struck down and died. Judgment actually always followed the mishandling of the ark of God. The ark of God in the Old Testament was the focal point of God's presence, of his word. Amen. <clears throat> the Israelites took it into battle against the Philistines when they, it was kind of a last-ditch effort, and they were defeated and it was captured. The Philistines sent it back because they were having outbreaks of tumors and cancer and so forth. Uh, because the ark was not in its place. Then when the Israelites got it back, a bunch of them looked inside of it, and they also died because they, weren't, they were not authorized to be looking inside of it. So the lesson that we see, for example, from Uzzah, is that good intentions are not sufficient. We cannot say, I mean well, and whatever I'm doing, I've thought up a good idea that I'm going to do for God. Or I want to be a this, or I want to be a that in the church. And then expect that God is obligated to understand that I meant well in what I was doing or saying. But we have to understand that we are the ones under obligation to hear and follow the pattern that is given from above. <clears throat> Even having a burden to see the ark restored to its proper place is not enough. We've got to know that we're going to do it according to proper order. And you remember, that's the revelation David got after they had gone up the first time and the Lord had broken out against them. He said to the Levites, You are the heads of the fathers' houses. Sanctify yourselves, you and your brethren, that you may bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel to the place I have prepared for it. For because you did not do it the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us because we did not consult him about the proper order. Thank you, Jesus. Who among us will be like David and say we're not going to take one step until we have consulted the Lord for his proper order? Praise God for the burden and for the desire to carry it up. Amen. Let's do it according to proper order. Don't you feel the foundation coming under our feet 
in these last few days that we've been together. God is building a house that the gates of hell are not going to prevail against. Amen. As each piece comes into place, the house is feeling more, more and more firm, more and more capable of withstanding the storms that are surely growing darker and stronger, are they not, in the world around us. Amen. But if anyone hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, he's going to be like a man who builds his house upon the rock. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. The first step in coming to understand the order of God is humility. It's to admit that we don't understand it without him. It's to be like the the Ethiopian eunuch. Do you understand what you're reading? How can I, unless someone explains it to me? I am not sufficient within myself. I need revelation from God. Amen. We need to admit that the knowledge of how this fearfully and wonderfully made body is fit together is too high for me that I cannot attain it. Remember Psalm 139 where David talks about the body, before I, was, before, uh, I came to be, you knew, you knew me. You, when the bones were knit together in my mother's womb, you fashioned me. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And he says such knowledge is, is high. It is too great for me. Amen. The Lord will show it to us by the Spirit. David was humbling himself at every step, bringing that ark back, wasn't he? And as we talked about, somebody is always watching from the window. As we humble ourselves, there's always some detached observer analyzing and looking down and um, mocking the most important thing that God is doing. James 3.16 tells us, For where there is envy and selfish ambition, there is disorder and every evil practice. David said, I will humble myself yet more. Amen. So David brought the ark up into the tabernacle of David, as we heard. And yet, David began to be troubled by the fact that he was living in a house and the ark of God had no temple built for his name. Once again, we see David more concerned about God than about himself. It's not about him. So immediately after the ark is returned, David already begins purposing to build the temple. He has a zeal to do it. God responds to him and tells him that he can't do it because he's been a man of war. But he responds to him with a promise. 1 Chronicles 17, and and you know the, the messianic implications of this promise. It shall be when your days are fulfilled, when you must go to be with your fathers, that I will set up your seed after you who will be of your sons. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build me a house, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. And I will not take my mercy away from him as I took it from him who was before you. And I will establish him in my house and in my kingdom forever. And his throne shall be established forever. Amen. And of course, Solomon, the name Solomon means son of peace. The prince of peace. Thank you, Jesus. What is the purpose of this temple that is being built? We've touched on this already. But what is the purpose of this temple? The Lord said it was going to be a place for His name. Amen. In Deuteronomy 12, when the children of Israel were still coming and wandering, the Lord spoke to them and said that you sh- when you come into the land, you shall no longer do as you are doing here today, each one according to his own desires. But you shall go to the place that I shall choose 
that I shall call by my name. Okay, now remember, we've been talking this whole time about salvation being a spatial phenomenon, that it being a, a place in which we must go. Okay, so he says, he tells them that there is going to be a place called by my name, and to that place you must go. And that place is where he was going to build the temple, the city that was called by his name, the Temple Mount, the place where David offered that sacrifice Brother Scott shared with us about, that he refused to offer a sacrifice that cost him nothing. He bought that threshing floor and that became the mountain that the, the temple was built upon. Thank you, Jesus. Now, I want to introduce another figure here that we could take, in a sense, as the antonym to King David. You remember, after Rehoboam is, is falling away, there, that Jeroboam is called. He's called by God. To, and the ten tribes are taken away and are given to him because of the idolatry that's going on. Right? And so we see Jeroboam anointed by God. He has to flee to Egypt because Rehoboam is after him. And, then, but it, and when the time, or Solomon is after him, oh no, who, no, I don't remember. It was Rehoboam, yeah. So, and then he eventually he comes back and he comes into his kingdom. But immediately he gets nervous. Immediately a little bit of selfish ambition comes in to leaven the promise that God has given him. He starts worrying about his kingdom. Just the opposite of David's heart. David said, the Lord is going to do this. Unless the Lord builds the house, those that labor, labor in vain. But Jeroboam says, unless I can keep a handle on this thing, it's not going to work. Right? And what does he tell the people? It, it's feast time. And the, the law has decreed, similar to what we just said, that everybody needs to go to Jerusalem, to the temple, to the place called by his name, because there is the access point to God. There his heart and his eyes are always there. We'll read about that more in a minute. Amen. They should go up to that place, and Jeroboam gets nervous because that's not really in the kingdom that he was planning reign over. He's afraid to let them go. And so he gives them a message that they love to hear. He says, don't you think it's a little too much to go all that way? Isn't there a way to serve God where we are already? We don't have to keep going here. It's too much for you. This is all about you, people. This isn't about me and me hanging on to my place. Amen. This is all for your sakes. I'm trying to help you. Bring it within your reach by lowering the Lord's standard just a little bit for your sake. It's going to be helpful. Amen. It's too much for you to go all the way to Jerusalem. We can set up something else that will be basically the same thing. Amen. And so Jeroboam picks priests for himself out of whichever tribe and family he wants. He designates places that he has chosen. He builds altars himself. He calls for sacrifices and all these things that have some form that, that has an appearance similar to what goes on in Jerusalem. And he says, you can worship Yahweh here. And he sets up this substitute that plagues Israel for the rest of the days of the kingdom. Amen. Amen. What happens after this? Every king that follows in both kingdoms, they're judged according to whether or not they followed after David and loved the Lord with all their heart or whether they committed the sin of Jeroboam. Amen? Those two models are held up against the standard against which every other king is judged because he's introduced this most dangerous sin, this hybridization, this prostitution of the things of God that have been just reconfigured a little bit. Amen. Make it a little easier. Thank you, Jesus.
He was afraid of losing his own kingdom, his own place. It hung on for centuries. It created the people called the Samaritans. That's why the woman at the well is like, well, you know, our forefathers worship God on this mountain. You Jews say that Jerusalem is the place that you have to worship. Jesus said, yeah, salvation is of the Jews. Amen. Because they believe it's got to be done according to pattern. Amen. And then, of course, he expanded that to say, there's still a pattern. But the time is coming when that pattern is going to be realized to the full extent that was in the heart of God from the beginning. That those who worship him will no longer worship on the mountains or in Jerusalem, but in spirit and in truth. We've got to have it all. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. The Samaritans still in the time of Jesus, it says one time that he went through the villages of Samaria. He was on his way to Jerusalem and he sent the disciples ahead of him to prepare for him in one of those villages. And the Samaritans, it says the Samaritans rejected them because Jesus was determined to go all the way to Jerusalem. You can expect the Samaritan church to reject you when your heart is set upon going all the way to Jerusalem. Because it challenges them. It convicts them. It tells them. It reminds them that there's a higher standard. Thank you, Jesus. The history of the church is full of those who had come a certain way beginning to persecute those who would then go the next step. Why? Because it reveals the unwillingness to build exactly according to pattern. To go all the way. It shows it up for what it is. Especially when the glory starts falling upon those who build according to pattern. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. So this house, this temple... That would be a place called for his name. It has form, it has structure, it has design. Remember Brother Ossie read to us from Ezekiel? Where Ezekiel is describing a temple that, as I understand it, can only be understood as the new temple that is going to be made without hands. And he says to them, I'm going to reread it because this is an important verse. As for you, son of man, describe the temple to the house of Israel that they may be ashamed of their iniquities and let them measure the plan or the pattern if they are ashamed of all that they have done make known to them the design of the house we need to be disaffected with the house that we have built we need to be disillusioned with the works of man before our eyes will even be Opened to see. Make known to them the design of the house, its structure, its exits, its entrances, all of its designs, all of its ordinances. Ordinance comes from the same root as order. And all its laws. And write it in their sight so that they may observe its whole design and all its ordinances and do them not accede to them in their heart. <laughs> Amen. Design implies authority. There is a designer if there is a design. When we, that's why um, the viewpoint of the world does not appreciate the view of origins that claims an intelligent designer. Because we can feel deep down in our hearts that if there is a designer, that perhaps he might still have some input in how his creatures should be behaving. So we would much prefer to believe that there was no design, this just happened. And here we are to enjoy the miracles of evolution. <laughs> I don't believe that we came into being through some uh, process of gradual change. Sometimes it seems like people approach the church that way. You know, progress is, is really, really, really slow. So slow that no one has ever observed it. So slow that actually it looks like everything is disintegrating and that we even have something called the law of entropy where things are falling apart and dying. 
But don't lose faith in the ability of chaos to one day produce the beauty of life. Give it enough time. Amen. It's not how God builds his house. Amen. And the Lord said, let there be light, and there was light. We believe in creation according to the word of God. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Where there is a pattern and a designer, it requires our submission to that pattern. Authority becomes concrete when pattern starts coming into view. The constraints of the form of the temple humble our flesh. Everything in the temple was ordered, you know. It's, we're, we're instructed in the Old Testament about um, the timing of when you could go in, which gates and doors to use, who could go in from which families and, and what times, uh, what they should, how they should dress when they went in, what that sacrifice was supposed to look like, what their hygiene was supposed to be in order to go in there. Amen. This is telling us something. This was the cultivation of the Jewish people. All of this law that was given. To, to produce a people who had a conviction that God cared about every part of their life. That everything in their lives needed to be done according to His will. It was to teach them to be conscious of God in everything. Okay, These were unregenerate people. But around every corner, you bumped into reminders that God has a way to do this. God has a way to do that. God has a way for you to relate to your parents. God has a way for marriages to work. God has a way for you to dress. God has a way for you to conduct yourself. God has a way for you to worship. So they had all these external reminders because God was trying to cultivate a people for His name. Thank you, Jesus. Now, in the New Covenant, as we've been talking about, the popular view is, praise God, we now, God doesn't care about any of it anymore. God has changed. He used to be really into uh, organizing and caring about all the details of our lives, but now it makes no difference to Him anymore. I don't believe that's true of the God who changes not. He just has brought us into a place and a power and a sacrifice that enables us to do it from the heart. This conformity that he requires to his identity, represented by his name, this conformity to the pattern of the temple, whose benefit is this for? It's ours, isn't it? Is this just a persnickety God that, you know, he's just picky? And so he just wants everything his way? Or does, does he not recognize that we need it? That we are, we are lost in the condition that we are. But if we could become like him, we could be saved. It's for our sakes that all of his order exists. It's for our good. It's because he loves us. It's because he wants the very best for us. It's the same reason why we do the same for our kids, isn't it? or that we should, I hope we do, that we provide structure and order and that we teach and we train them. It's not because we hate them and want to make their lives hard. It's because we see further than they do in their infantile thinking. And we know, if you'll trust me and submit to this order that I'm teaching you, it's going to go well with you in the land the Lord is bringing you into. He's not, God is not the one who needs to change. We're the ones that need to change. And the temple helps us to conform to his image. The temple was the place of consecration, the place of sanctification, of cleansing, of washing, of forgiveness. It's the place of salvation. When it's built according to pattern, what happens? Glory comes down. We see it happen every time. When, when Moses finished the tabernacle according to Zion, now when, so Moses finished the work, Exodus 40. Then the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle of meeting because the cloud rested above it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And then the same thing happens again. Once Solomon builds the house according to design, 
And it came to pass then that when the priest came out of the holy place, that the cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priest could not continue ministering because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. What is the glory of the Lord? How can we define or describe glory? Somebody help us with that? It's amazing how hard it is to define some of these simple things, isn't it? Sometimes. Brother Micah says, a manifestation of his nature. Glory has to do with an expression, does it not? Manifestation, Micah is saying. Anybody else was wanting to offer something? Amen. The radiant reputation of God. Brother Blair shared that with us a while back. That his glory can be translated as his radiant, his outshining reputation. It's what communicates to people who God is. So glory fills the temple for his name's sake. When we bring glory to God, we're bringing honor to his reputation. We're expressing to others the greatness, the goodness of God. In 1 Kings 8, I would love to read you the whole chapter of 1 Kings 8 because it's so incredible, but I'm not going to. It's all about the temple and what God is, the activity of God in that place when Solomon's built it. But he says here in verse 41, Moreover, concerning the foreigner, who is not of your people Israel, but has come from a far country for your name's sake, for they will hear of your great name and your strong hand and your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays towards this temple, here in heaven your dwelling place, and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, that all peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this temple which I have built is called by your name. So Solomon prays, Lord, let this temple be a witness. Let it be an expression of your glory. And that literally happens two chapters later when the queen of Sheba comes. Having heard of the temple, having heard of his great name, the word has gone out to the nations and she's heard about it and so she comes to the mountain of the Lord. And it said, now when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built and the food on his table, and the deportment of his servants, and the order of service of his attendants, and their apparel, and his cupbearers, and the sacrifices that he offered at the house of the Lord. There was no more spirit in her. It took her breath away. She didn't just come and hear some preaching, did she? She came and saw a culture ordered by God. And the, the completeness of it spoke a harmonized message into her soul that was beyond. She said, the half wasn't told me. Thank you, Jesus. Jesus would say, now one greater than Solomon is here. Is this how people feel? when they come to see the community of Christ. God, make us an expression of your glory. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. The temple in the New Testament, we know that this earthly house could not really contain him. Solomon said it right there in 1 Kings 8. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, Heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple which I have built. Over and over we're told. Isaiah said it. Stephen quoted it. The Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands. Amen. Heaven is my throne. Earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Acts 17, Paul says it again. God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples Made with hands. He's going to build a temple without hands, and that temple is us. Thank you, Jesus. 
Some of this we've already talked about, so I may skip through some of this. Praise you, Jesus. Let me read you a couple connections here. In Isaiah 9, we've been talking about it a lot. For unto us a child is born. Messianic prophecy here. Unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of His government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over His kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward even forever. The zeal of the Yahweh of hosts will accomplish this. God, give us the zeal for the increase of your government and peace. Thank you, Jesus. In Luke 1, the prophecy of Zacharias. I'm sorry, this is the angel. Zacharias has a similar one. But this is the angel to Mary. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son. You shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. So this earthly tabernacle, this earthly temple, we're told over and over again in the book of Hebrews, in the book of Colossians, it was a copy It was a shadow of the reality that was to come. Thank you, Jesus. In Colossians 2 and 17, he actually says, these things referring to the law and and so forth, these were a shadow of things to come, but the substance is Christ. Some translations say, but the reality is Christ. But the word there actually is soma. It's the Greek word for body. So the shadows were typifying what was to come that was going to be realized in the body of Christ. Amen. The greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands. Thank you, Jesus. Jesus also brought glory by finishing the work. Father, I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself. We know that that temple is his body. We've already talked about some of those passages. When Jesus spoke about, this is actually immediately following where they remembered, zeal for your house has consumed me. Uh, And they said, "Um, what sign do you give us since you're uh, disrupting our man-made order? And he says, destroy this temple and in three days I'm going to build it up. I'm going to raise it up. And they say, you know, it's taken all this time to build this temple. And, but it says that he was speaking of the temple of his body. Thank you, Jesus. Now we know that individual temple fell to the ground and died. Amen. And now it's sprouted in a multitude of fruit. He was the firstborn of many brothers. Hebrews 3 says... Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was faithful in all of his house. For this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant, for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterward, but Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are. If, there's another one of those ifs, whose house we are if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, we are God's fellow workers. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. But we're, he has wise master builders, does he not? Amen. To put that house together. We are fellow workers with God. 
You are God's field. You are God's building. According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds upon it, and so forth. Later in this passage, he says, Do you not know that you are the temple of God? Many other places it says it. We've quoted them already. Ephesians 2. We are, the whole, we are being fitted together, growing into a holy temple in the Lord. We're being, I'm sorry, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Thank you, Jesus. Do you remember how it says in uh, Romans 6, he says, You used to be slaves to sin, but thanks be to God that you obeyed from the heart the form of teaching to which you were committed. Here comes form into the picture again. And it's interesting that he doesn't say just the form that that you committed to. He says the form into which you were committed. Indicating that God already has a larger design for the house. And the teachings are simply the, the verbal or written expressions of the patterns of relationships that form that house. And so it can be translated the form into which you were delivered or into which you were entrusted. So we obey from the heart and we are then entrusted into the form, the design that God has ordained. He wants a royal priesthood, a holy nation. It's no longer just some who enter to make the sacrifices. It's all of us now, isn't it? We participate in the sacrifices, in the washing. Amen. Through all the things we've been hearing the last couple of days. The sacrifice of repentance. The washing of water through baptism, the word, immersion in the spirit, the ordering of the house of God. Thank you, Jesus. The temple is still the place of sacrifice. That's what takes place in the temple. Only now it's not just offering this little piece, that little token, Now it's offering ourselves as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Hebrews 10, Therefore when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. There is no greater sacrifice than to be obedient to the will of God. Thank you, Jesus. So it's still the place of His name. It's still the place to which we must go. It's still the place that has to be built according to pattern. It's still the place of cleansing, of washing, of forgiveness, of atonement, of salvation. Thank you, Jesus. Praise God for the privilege of being able to be delivered into that form. Amen. To be entrusted into the perfect form of God that will hold the content of our salvation. Thank you, Jesus. It still requires us to be conformed to His identity, to show proper honor for the relational order that God has established. Thank you, Jesus. I want to close here by sharing a little bit about Nehemiah's burden. You remember the story of Nehemiah. He's living in Babylon. He's he's in exile with the people of God. And he hears a report that comes back to him from somebody who's gone through the land and, and has seen And they come back and they tell him, the survivors are in distress and reproach. They tell him, the walls of the city have been broken down. 
The gates are burned with fire. And something starts turning over in Nehemiah's heart. Zeal for his house. He starts to feel something that begins to consume him. Amen. I suppose that he would have been aware of Isaiah 62. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not remain quiet until her righteousness shines out like the dawn. That's the glory. And her salvation like a blazing torch. Going down, I have posted watchmen on your walls, Jerusalem. They will never be silent day or night. You who call on the Lord, give yourselves no rest. And give Him no rest until He establishes Jerusalem and makes her the praise of the whole earth. Something is churning over in his heart saying, it's not supposed to be this way. The city of God is not supposed to be in reproach and broken down with the enemies mingling and walking all over it. There's supposed to come a day when the mountain of the Lord is exalted above all the mountains of the earth and people stream to it and say, teach us the ways of the Lord. Why has this thing called Jerusalem fallen into such disgrace? Zeal for his house is in my heart. Thank you, Jesus. Psalm 137. I'm not sure who wrote this. Nehemiah could have written it for all we know. I'm not sure if we know who wrote it. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars, we hung up our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. You're supposed to be happy in Babylon. Sing to us one of the songs of Zion. Import the things of Lord into the high places. It'll work. But how can we sing the songs of the Lord in a foreign land? It's the wrong soil. The wrong culture. If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. If I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joys. Remember, Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear down its foundations. Something comes into our heart that says, let's bring the foundations back. Let's rebuild the temple of the Lord. Amen. Let's put it back in order. And so his heart is stirred when he hears this report. And he prays to God, and I won't read you the whole prayer, but he says, in his prayer, he says, Lord, we have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember, I pray, the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast out to the farthest part of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. You know, they say that it was a capital offense in the courts of Babylon to have a sad face. You're not even allowed to let on that you're disaffected with the adulterous confusion of the Babylonian church. You're supposed to pretend that everything's fine. Amen. But Nehemiah couldn't do it. He just couldn't do it. He knew what it would cost him, but it it was burning in his heart. And so while he's there, he says, oh God, Please help me. And then then we see why. Because he says, for I was the king's cupbearer. And then when he's in the presence of the king, and the king says, why is your countenance so sad? He says, how could it be otherwise? Given the condition of my people and my country, my city. Thank you, Jesus. And he finds favor. And he sets out on a journey. To restore Jerusalem as the praise of the earth. 
Thank you, Jesus. Haggai was one of the prophets that aided in the rebuilding of the temple that had been torn down. He says in chapter 2, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel. The name Zerubbabel means a seed coming out of Babylon. Governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? In comparison with it, is this not in your eyes as nothing? Yet now, be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Lord, and be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and be strong, all you people of the land, says the Lord, and work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. According to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you, do not fear. For thus says Yahweh of hosts, once more, it is a little while, I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and dry land, and I will shake all nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations, and I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts, and the glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts, and in this place I will give peace. Amen. It says in Zechariah that these things that were spoken, it says specifically about Joshua, which is, is, is um, the same roots as Yahshua, Jesus. It says that these things, it says these men are symbolic of things to come. So even this restoration that was happening was symbolic of a future time when the perfect temple would be built according to design and then wicked and faithless men would infiltrate and tear it down to the foundations, but that someone's heart in Babylon would be stirred to rebuild it. Amen. Zechariah was another one of those prophets that went with him. Zechariah 4, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. How is this going to happen? How is this impossible rebuilding going to take place? The word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain. Before those who are willing to come out of Babylon, the mountains are going to melt like wax. And he shall bring forth the capstone with shouts of grace, grace to it. Amen. The Lord is going to return when this temple is built back according to perfect order. Thank you, Jesus. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple, and his hands shall also finish it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For who has despised the day of small things? Amen. We can't despise the day of small things. If we expect to see the temple restored, we have to start paying all the more earnest heed and attention to the things that we have heard. Amen. And neither can we look upon the beginnings and say, oh, I don't know. We have to say, God, that's it. There's a seed here. Amen. God, we believe that it's going to grow. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. And then the next line is, for these seven rejoice to see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. Amen. Do you rejoice when the plumb line is held up? You know what that is. That's the standard. That's that authority of the designer that says, how do you measure up? Is your house in order? Amen. We would do well to remember that the Word instructs us, how can we be leaders in the house of God if our own household is not in order? Amen? We've got to begin right at home and right where it hurts, in our own hearts, in our own lives, in our own households. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. 
We rejoice when we see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel because we see the temple is being built. And if we have a zeal for his house, if we're a man after God's own heart, then it's not about us. We don't mind the chiseling. We don't mind the reductions. We don't mind the shaping because we say, God, this is about you. This is about your house and about your people. So do everything you got to do, Lord. Amen. To make us a dwelling place for your Holy Spirit. Thank you, Jesus. These seven rejoice to see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. They are the eyes of the Lord, which scan to and fro throughout the whole earth. And we know from Second Chronicles, he says, The eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, line us up to the cornerstone. Amen. Bring the plumb line into our lives. Hold up the standard, God. We seek you to reveal your pattern. God, we're going to go up to the mountain and hear your voice, God. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. And everything small and everything great, make us a habitation for your glory. In Jesus' name. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. God is looking for people who have a zeal for his house. God, help us be that people.